Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by professor and poet Nikki Giovanni. Giovanni emerged from the Black Arts Movement of the 1960s, alongside writers like Maya Angelou, James Baldwin, Gwendolyn Brooks, and Sonia Sanchez. The movement, according to poet Larry Neal, was the aesthetic and spiritual sister of the Black Power concept. The mission statement being to create a separate cultural existence for Black people on their own terms where the beauty of blackness was front and center. Giovanni became a leading voice from that era and has since published over 20 poetry collections, including Black Feeling, Black Talk, Cotton Candy on a Rainy Day, and Make Me Rain, which is now available on paperback through HarperCollins. Her honors include a fellowship from the National Endowment of the Arts, three NAACP Image Awards for Literature, and the Langston Hughes Award for Distinguished Contributions to Arts and Letters. She remains as the University Distinguished Professor at Virginia Tech, where she has taught since 1987. Naturally, Giovanni resides in Virginia, which is where she joins us from this week. As I often say about people of a certain age that come on Talk Easy, it's just impossible to capture 78 years of life in 60 minutes, especially when the years are as full as Giovanni's. We will do a part two of this conversation 
later down the line, hopefully in person. But until then, today, we discuss her childhood split between Cincinnati, Ohio and Knoxville, Tennessee, the enduring influence of her grandmother, a televised conversation with James Baldwin from 1971, why she continues to write, and a whole lot more. Now, I just want to give a warning at the top here. Around the 17-minute mark, Giovanni and I discuss her late friend, Donnie Hathaway, who took his life back in 1979. Just to be transparent, there is some talk of suicide, but it's wrapped in a larger conversation around freedom and choice that I think takes a few interesting turns. And I think that speaks to the nature of Nikki Giovanni, both the woman and the poet. There's an unpredictability to her thought, her words. You never quite know where she's going, both in conversation and on the page. And then suddenly you arrive at the destination and you can't quite imagine being anywhere else. At least I couldn't. I hope you feel the same. Now, here is Nikki Giovanni. Nikki Giovanni, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Sam. How are you? I'm so grateful to have you here. I'm delighted, and I'm glad you're not burning up being out there in California. <laughs> Everything is on fire, so I'm glad you're safe. There are so many places to start, but perhaps we begin at the beginning. Because when it comes to writers, people love an origin story, but I'm not entirely sure one chooses writing or if writing chooses you. And yet, I wonder, because being born in Knoxville, Tennessee, then being raised in a predominantly black suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio, you said, as a kid, I think I was lucky because I was always sniffling. Colds, allergies, something or another. Which meant I got to stay home from school a lot. Which meant I could read the books that I wanted to read. Do you think... This is where it all began for you? I stayed home a lot from school just because my mother used to not have a job, but my mother had a job, and my sister went to another school. I went to an Episcopal school, just small private school. And so I was left at home because I could walk to school, which was very lucky because then I wouldn't go. My chore at home was to dust, so I would dust, and then I would pick up books that I wanted to read, and about 2.30, I would uh, get dressed and go to school. And it finally dawned on Sister Althea that she never saw me until about 2.30 or 3 o'clock. And she would say, Nikki, you know, where have you been? And I said, oh, I, I was here. And, and she finally said, no, you were not here. You, you never come to class. And I said, well, actually, and it's true. I said, actually, there was, there was no reason to be here. It's not that nobody had anything to teach me. It's just that I could read my own books and I enjoyed my time alone. And even with the COVID, and a lot of people have complained about COVID and about being home by themselves or being stuck by themselves. I couldn't think of anything happier. I've, I've been incredibly pleased to be alone. I have friends that, that uh, do come by very seldom, and I go by, but I think it's nice to be at home. <laughs> so, 
So even at a young age, you could stand your own company? You you might could say could stand, but I, I've always admitted I preferred it. <laughs> um, I really did. And I'm the baby sister. Baby sisters always get left out of everything anyway. My my big sister had a lot of friends. My big sister is, is friendly. I'm not really a friendly person, so I never missed not being a part of whatever it is they were doing. You know, you finally learned, oh, what I'm going to do here is not care about any of these things. I don't care about a lot of things, so I'm, I'm very comfortable <laughs> with not caring. I think what you're describing is a childhood of listening and listening to your sister. In fact, you wrote a poem about this, which uh, I'd love for you to read if you're open to it. Big sisters have dimples, can sing, play the piano, tap dance, read books, talk on the phone, paint their toenails overnight with friends while little sisters look on and love. And I think that's what little sisters do. In my class, I have uh, um, 15 students right now. And last Tuesday, because we were discussing, I said, oh, how many of us are baby sisters? And there were five of us who are baby sisters and one baby brother. And it was so funny because we all agreed that what we did was we adored our big sisters and big brothers, and that's who we really wanted to be. But again, just to finish that sentence, the composers that I know all spend time alone. They sing to themselves. And it's wonderful because they would never have done that. They would never have heard these sounds if they had, in fact, been going around. That's why the actors are all crazy. I'm not picking on actors, but actors are so used to being around so many people that they lose track of who they are because they're always trying to be somebody else. But we who write, we're just trying to capture what it is that we see. One thing you did see growing up is your mother and father and a fairly explosive relationship. You said, if you wanted to know what I was doing on a Saturday night, I was listening to my father beat my mother. How did bearing witness to that impact the woman you were becoming at that age? Golly, I would I would have no idea. I've never been in therapy, and I probably should be. But I just knew that my job was to listen to, to not forget what I was hearing and to not let it be put aside or to not let somebody say it doesn't matter. So I'm very proud as a woman of the Me Too movement that women are finally beginning to speak out, to say what they've heard or what they've seen. I think it's good. My father had a stroke, and um, my mother, I realized, she loved him. But my father had a stroke, and my mother called me. I was living in New York. And my mother called me and she said, your father's in the, in the hospital. He had a stroke. And I knew immediately that she wasn't calling to tell me because I couldn't have cared less. <laughs> and, and so I knew that she was calling to say, I need a daughter. And I do think, and I say it all the time, but daughters are precious. And I knew that mommy needed a daughter. And my big sister was living in Seattle. She was never going to come back. She wouldn't say it like that because we never had that discussion. But I had a little Volkswagen and I had a son and I had a dog. So what more do you need? I threw us all in the car and drove home, and we stayed. So I ended up writing a poem that said, I married my mother. But when he came home from the hospital, of course, I realized, oh, now the problem here is that we're living in his house, and what we're going to do is we're going to live in my house. So I bought, I bought my mother a house, and I said to my father, we're going to move. And he said, I don't want to move. And I said, I, don't, <laughs> I really didn't ask you. I'm telling you 
we are moving. I don't care if you go or come. It means nothing to me. I'd be delighted to put you in an old folks home or, you know, doesn't mean anything. And you have to remember, I'm a Giovanni. So anything that's going to be mean, I can do it because you know that I'm kin to you. So it kind of straightened my, our relationship out. And uh, when we moved, because he did want to move, I said to him, now this is what you're going to do. Every morning when she fixes breakfast, you're going to tell her how much you enjoyed it. And you're going to tell her how nice she looks and you're going to thank her. I either want you to be nice or I'm going to put you away. So it was amazing. Next morning he got up. Oh, honey, that was the best breakfast. Because he understood I am a Giovanni and I would have put him away. (laughs) The Giovannis are are mean people. (laughs) I don't think you're too mean, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) Now, sometimes you just have to tell people. Maybe they don't know. And so you just have to tell them, this is the way it's going to go. It's my house, and I'm going to have to take responsibility here because there was nobody else to take responsibility. I had a son and a dog and clearly a mother who was going to need some help to get through a few things. And you have to do what you have to do. The way you've described that relationship between your mother and father and then you and your father reminds me of one passage from a conversation you had with James Baldwin back in 1971. I have the clip right here, if you're open to watching it with me. Sure. It takes two people to have a relationship. Yeah, but, but, it, but the relationship... If you don't have a dream, fake it. But the relationship, you can't fake a dream. You've got to fake it, because we don't have dreams these days. How the hell can you have a dream? For what? Well, it isn't... So, so everybody's, everybody's jiving, but let's jive on that level. If I love you, I can't lie to you. Of course you can lie to me. And you will. If you love me and you're going off with Maddie someplace, you're lying to me. Because what the hell do I care about the truth? I care if you're there. What Billy Holiday say, hush now, don't explain. All right, I accept that. Of course. Of All course right, you lie to me. Because I don't even want to care. What, what does the truth matter? And why are you going to be truthful with me when you lie to everybody else? You lied when you smiled at that cracker down the job, right? Lie to me, smile. Treat me the same way you would treat him. I can't treat you, you the way must. I treat him. You must. Because I've caught the I've caught the frowns and the anger. He's happy with you. Of course he doesn't know you're unhappy. You grin at him all day long. You come home and I catch hell. Because I love you. I get least of you. I get I get the very minimum. And I'm saying, you know, fake it with me. Is that too much of the black woman to ask of the black man? For ten years, so that we can get a child on his feet that says, Yeah, father smiled at mother. He talked to me about school today. Who cares that you can read or can't read? Most Americans can't read. Most people can't read. They look at the pictures. Baby, baby, I know what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying, and I, I don't disagree, but no, I'm going to be honest and think about it, really. I'm not so sure that that is a human possibility. I do. I I remember that. And we were just talking about my father. Everybody lies about something. I mean, life is 90%, I think, a lie. And Baldwin was saying to me, you don't understand. He's tired and he's been through a lot of effort. A lot of things have gone wrong. And I said, no, you don't understand that he has put positive energy out into people who he doesn't like, who don't like him. When he needs to let his negative energy go out, That's not the term we use, but that's what it amounted to. So that when he comes home, he has the love for his wife and his children that he needs to recognize. Those other people don't matter. 
that you're not going to please them. You never are, and uh, you never will. But we're the ones who, who stay home, who love you. We're the ones who want you to have a good dinner or the best dinner we can make. We're the ones who are glad to see you. And you have to be careful about who you decide you're going to please. At one point, you're going to see his face because he hadn't thought about it. Said, you know, you lie. One does lie. We lie to a lot of people for a lot of reasons. How are you feeling today? You just asked me, well, are you upset about the problems that we have? Well, the answer, that's a lie. The answer was no. No, I'm not upset. The answer, that's a lie. <laughs> and if you didn't know that was a lie, you were either a fool or, <laughs> or you can't hear. Of course, it, it was upsetting. But the reality of what we're going through is why, if I had a negative feeling, which I don't, why would I hit the dog? And the dog only wants to love me. I have a Yorkie. She's crazy. But dogs only want to love you. And I think the same thing is true about wives. I think the same thing is true about your children. We want to love you. And it's up to you to make a decision whether you want to keep that love or whether you're willing to give that love up so that you can show off for somebody who doesn't care about you at all. And yet, there's so much pushback on the side of Baldwin. And he slowly, over time, concedes to your point. It took Jimmy a minute to finally realize, oh, she's right. Because Jimmy also cared about a lot of people, many of whom did not care about him. And he had to also learn in his own way to let some people go. Some people were never going to be pleased with Baldwin, with his writing, with his life, his teeth, whatever. And I knew his brother David, who was wonderful, and I knew his sister and his mother. I finally got to know all of the family. And I think that what Jimmy knew was that those who love me will and those who don't, won't. And it finally went click, click, click. Everybody's not going to love you. And so you have to make a decision. For those who do, what am I giving back? And you owe them love back. That's too simple. Why don't we take a, a moment for you to read that poem you just mentioned, I Married My Mother. <laughs> yeah. I know crying is a skill. I automatically wipe my eyes, even though I know. Crying is a skill. Maybe I will learn. My mother did when she thought I was asleep. I think my sister did sleep. But sleep is as difficult to me as crying. I laugh easily, and I smile, and withhold any true feelings. Except once I fell in love with my eighth grade teacher and spent most of my life trying to feel safe again. Though maybe I'm safe now, after almost 30 years, which is as long as I lived with my mother. Maybe that's not a poem. Maybe that's something else. Maybe I just wanted to show my father that he needn't be cruel. Maybe I just enjoyed buying the house he had to live in, showing her she should have married me instead of him. Or maybe, since we will all soon be gone, I should be happy I found my mother and someone else who loves me. When I moved here to uh, Virginia, I had said to mommy, you know, would you, you want to move to Virginia, you know? And she was like, well, I'm going to move with you because we had been together now for several years. And I used to say that to her every now and then. I'd say, mommy, you know, you should have married me. And she would say, well, if I had married you, I couldn't have had what I have gotten you. And I said, well, you know, there's science out there. We're learning a lot in science. And we're going to find a way to end up having babies that we want. <laughs> without having to go through any effort. And she said, oh, I don't know about that. We used to laugh about that because, uh, as I say, she loved Gus. To me, that was her right to do so. 
she had a right to choose her life. And the reason that Mama and I got along, and uh, my sister and I, as we got older, did not get along as well because my sister made judgments. And Mommy knew never to judge. Mommy didn't judge me, and I didn't judge her. So we got along all of the years until till the day she died because we both left that room for each other. And I think that's important. I'm a big fan of, of abortion. I'm a real big fan of, of divorce. I'm a big fan of your life. I'm a big fan of suicide. I don't know why suicide, of all things, is some kind of a crime. I think we who love you would like for you to continue because we love you. And life is a continuation. But if you're saying, I don't wish to continue, I've done all I want to do with this life, then we're going to miss you. And we have a right to miss you, but you also have a right to not continue. You know, it's all balancing out. We're all balancing it out. I just get so sick of people always trying to tell you what to do with your life. I've never heard anyone have that position on suicide before. I've known quite a few. Uh, my friend Donnie Hathaway, and I, that was a, a loss. And it was sad. I mean, Donnie Hathaway was a great writer, and his music is wonderful. Every year, we this Christmas is, is played all over the world every year. And Donnie was a great guy, but he had other issues, and he did not wish to continue. And he would be among other people that we would know. I mentioned Donnie because everybody knows Donnie and knows that he jumped out of a window. I'm sure it was sad for his daughter. It was sad for those of us who were his friends. I was a friend, but it was his life. It was not mine. It was his. And he can choose how he wants to continue or what he wants to do with it. And we have to respect that, don't you think? I think we have to respect it. Absolutely. It, it's hard. It's, it's hard on the family. It's hard on the people left behind. And the burden goes on to them. And I think that's where it gets um, it gets messy. Yeah, but you, you can't continue anything because somebody else wants you to do that. And I've been looking at, of course, because I love it so much, Downton Abbey. And I think it's so wonderful. And one of the characters is, um, his name is Tom. And Tommy is gay. And that's one of his problems is that he doesn't know how to deal with being gay because the British don't allow you, as he put it, to be gay. And yet, it's his life, and why shouldn't he be? And so I'm really glad to see that the uh, gay movement, people say, I have a right to be, I have a right to my life. And I guess the other thing that I really hate is people say, oh, why are you wasting your time with that? As if they know how much time you have and what you should do with it. And I'm always amazed people will tell you that. Oh, I wouldn't waste any time going out with him. Or I wouldn't waste any time doing that. Well, who the hell are you? And how do you know how much time I have? It may not be wasted. It may be that tomorrow I won't be here. So I should do with my time that which pleases me. I don't have to be bothered with you and hearing your judgments. And people say, well, if you want to know what I think, because I never do. If I wanted to know what you think, I would have asked you. <laughs> so don't, I would have. Do not volunteer. If you want to know what I think, no, I don't. And I, I will say that, no, I do not want to know what you think. Go get a life of your own. We'll be right back after a quick break. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. You said once, I don't believe in role models and inspiration. I just don't believe in it. I never did. But I had a terrific grandmother who was always very interested in what I was doing. 
I know my grandmother was a great influence in that degree, but I reject the notion that someone winds you up and starts you on your way. Grandmother was wonderful, and I was very fortunate to have a wonderful grandmother. I just finished a book that probably won't be out until 22 sometime. It's called A Library. And I was living with grandmother, and what she had, which nobody that's listening to this will understand, is a washing machine. But the washing machine was the old hand wash. You would put the clothes in, and you'd have to turn it yourself. And it was a long time before grandmother got uh, my Aunt Agnes purchased her a real washing machine. But what we did was had breakfast, and then grandmother washed while I did the dishes and did some dusting. And we would then take the sheets out, and sheets have never smelled as good. We would take the sheets out and put them on the clothesline, and the wind would blow. And there's just nothing as wonderful. If you've ever had fresh sheets coming off that. But then grandmother smoked. Grandpapa didn't, by the way. And so after we did the laundry, grandmother would say, well, I'm going to take my sit down, which was her way of saying, you know, go someplace. She would say, aren't you going to return those books? And I would go up to the library. And that's a book that's called Library, because libraries are so important. And I would take my books and go up to the library. And I'd spend the rest of the day in the library trying to understand something or trying to learn something or trying to do something. I don't think grandmother was trying to inspire me or anything like that. I think she wanted to have her cigarette and be left alone, but I, I tried to be useful. It's just really funny, the, the little things that you learn. And it, it was fun. I, I still miss grandmother. I know your grandmother didn't inspire you to do what you did, because like you said, no one starts you up and pushes you on your way. But when you did start to write in the late 60s. You talked about usefulness, and you said it was the 60s, and so the first thing you had to do was figure out, what am I trying to get done? How do I contribute? What can I do? Take me back to what you were thinking as a young 20-something starting to write and feel their place in the world. Grandmother was gone when I published my first book, But she was alive when I graduated from college, and that was important because graduating from college was important to her. And I say that I gave a graduation speech recently, and I was pointing out to the students, you know, you're not in college for your sake because anything that anybody wants you to learn, they're going to teach you. Amazon is going to teach you what they want to learn. You're going to be taught what you want to learn, what you need to learn by the people who are hiring you. You are in college because those people sitting in heaven for 200 years who were not allowed to read and write, those people are the ones that you're in college for. And those people are the people we graduate from college for. I'm very pleased about that. The one thing that I probably most regret, I don't have a bunch of regrets, but I do have this one, is that grandmother played the piano and she wanted to teach me. So she'd call you in, you know, and you were supposed to sit down and and take your piano lessons, you know, dun, 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 dun. And (laughs) I hit the wrong note one time. And grandmother used to have that little yellow pencil. And she hit my, my knuckles. And I, I just stopped. And I said, Grandmother, if you're going to be abusive, I'm not going to sit here. <laughs> she said, abusive? And it was one of those like, well, I'll be dog. And I got up and walked out. So I left. I never did. And I'm sorry I didn't learn to play the piano. I, I didn't have any of those abilities, any of those skills. So. If you don't do that, then all you can do is watch. And if you watch, then you have to write. You have to write down what you've seen. 
So I became a poet. I brought up that usefulness because when you started writing, you said, no one is going to kill me for my words. And I think the reason you said that is because if you look at where you came from, your great-grandfather was a slave. Your grandfather attended Fisk University. He was a Latin scholar, but your mother, she was also a dreamer. And I wondered, as you did write and you, and you continued writing, do you think about your place in that long arc that is your family? I think of all of the people in, in the, my family that I know, uh, we don't know much about Gus's family, but having another mouth to feed had to be serious business in those days, simply because Grandpapa, he taught Latin. And when he retired, all he's going to have is Social Security retirement. Grandmother would every now and then go and cook. She was a great cook in some white person's kitchen. She always made it sound like, oh boy. It took me the longest to realize this this couldn't have been fun. And one of the reasons she needed the extra money is going to have to be me. And so you start to put things together and you say, you know, what is it? When Dr. Bunch, Lonnie Bunch, finally got the African-American Museum put together and they opened it, I went to what is called the legacy opening because the night after that, the president's going to be there, the president being Barack Obama. So I went to the legacy. And as we were going around, I wasn't thinking about me. I was just, wow, because I, I was a history major in Fisk. And you reach a point on that second round and you could go there and see it. And you can go right, and you'll see some photographs, or you could go left. And if you go left, the little old ladies, and they're wonderful, were there who had been in the civil rights movement. They looked like they were going to church, and they were lined up because there's a, a room there that you sit down and tell your story. And that line was long, and I thought, that's wonderful. They, they need to tell their story. And I turned right, and I looked up, and that was me, a picture of me. Without thinking, I just turned left to say, see, grandmother, I did my job. And I just stood there for a moment, and tears just fell, fell down my eyes. And I mean, I knew she was gone, but I hadn't expected to see me in the museum. I remain so sorry that grandmother isn't here to see I am there. I did my job, and I know that she would be proud. I'm not like a church-going person, but I'm a big fan of spirituals. So I don't have a problem with believing that, you know, you feel somebody. You have to let yourself be open. I just knew grandmother was there. And I thought, uh, she's sitting up in heaven saying, see, my baby, my baby graduated. We look at the enslaved who are not allowed to read and write. And we look at mistreatment that some people had. And then we looked at, they finally could go to school. I mean, just the little things. And then you think, well, who cares about these things? And you realize, well, who cares are the people sitting in heaven? They've been there 200 years waiting to see something like the African-American Museum go up. They've, they've been waiting. And that's why we get these things done. That's what the monuments are for. That's what the plaques are for. It's not for us because oh, we'd be dead and forgotten about it. We'd be drunk or whatever. It's for those people who all those years kept believing every day will be better. We have to believe in tomorrow. How are you feeling? <laughs> it's just one of the things that brings tears to my eyes because I'll always, I'll always just remember. So you go, you don't expect to see yourself in a museum. I mean, that's you just don't. I should have known because uh, 
I guess I'm significant enough to be in a museum, but you don't think about that. And to look up and see your face, because that, that's who I wanted to, to, to know. Yeah, grandmother, I did my job. I wonder, has the definition of that job to write, has it changed over the years? I started off writing conventional poetry and doing conventional sonnet and stuff. And then more and more, I realized there's stories to be told. And so the poems got longer and longer. And more and more, I was fortunate enough to meet some incredible people. And not just my grandmother, but Mrs. Parks and grandmother were at the settlement house and learning how to, how to work together to go nonviolent, to do nonviolent things, to be a part of that. And you learn that you have something to say. And it all comes back to the same one thing. All I have are words. And so I need to use the words that I have to tell the story that I want. So I don't like anybody, as you can probably see, shutting me off. All I have are words. And so I have to use my words that that make sense to me, that I can be proud of. And one of the things that I don't do, you talked about we were looking at Jimmy Baldwin and me, but I haven't looked at that, nor have I reread it. That became a book. Uh, Lippincott put the book out. I think that it's going to become another book. It's going to be the what is called The Last Interview. And I gave permission for that. They asked, maybe someone will enjoy reading it. Maybe, I, I don't know, but of course you have permission. Some things you do get paid for, but most things just, you let them go. And so I don't go back to reread. I'm working on a book called The New Book. And I've been laughing at myself because I, some people had requested for a variety of reasons, you know, we'd like a poem about this, that, or the other. And I realized I had these poems floating on my desktop, so I thought I got to put them in a folder. And as you know, because you've been working with me, I'm not good at, at all of this stuff. And then putting them in a folder, they needed a name. And so I thought, oh, it's the new book. Who knows? You do not know how much time you have. So if right now I fell out, Right now, I'm talking to you, and I'm gone. All of a sudden, you don't hear from me, and the dog is barking, and everybody realized, well, she's transitioned. One of the things that you'll know, because you'll look up there and say, I wonder what the new book is. And I've got a little bit more than 20 poems in the new book. So I'm enjoying, as I am writing, putting things into the new book. And one, I think that's what it's going to be called. And one day, uh, I'll be 90 years old or so, and hopefully publish that book, and there'll be another you know, life is a good idea, and I'm, so I'm going to recommend life. We were talking about suicide earlier, and I'm going to hope that you find the things in life that make you want to be a part of it. It's good, but I also want to go into space, so uh, I'd love to take, you know, take Cleopatra, and what I've been trying to figure out is how to get champagne. I've been laughing with Dr. Bolden when he was the head of uh, NASA. I said, well, the problem is how do you get champagne? Because it bubbles. And once you get out of, you know, out of the gravity, the champagne is going to suffer. And so if you can get your dog and champagne in space, you don't need anything more. <laughs> Life is good. You'll be, you'll be able to look at that little blue ball and say, look at those fools, because they'll be in some kind of war. They'll be doing something dumb. And so it'll be nice for you and your dog and your champagne to be sitting up there <laughs> going round and round. <laughs> I so love that. You said that when you turn 90, you're going to publish another book. And I think 
one of the great joys of your writing is that you've reinvented yourself along the way. And I wondered, when you were diagnosed with lung cancer and breast cancer with Dr. Gregory, how did that change the person you were? The one thing you definitely know, and I'm not, I'm not being brave or courageous or anything, but you know if you were born, you're going to die. Really against homicide, I think, you know, you, nobody has to kill you because you're going to die. Things are going to happen. But I always say it, and it, I get teased about that. An airplane only does two things. It should take off and it should land. And I'm the person sitting in first class. I don't want to drink. I don't want to eat. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to hope that that plane takes off and lands because that's what it's supposed to do. And when I was diagnosed with cancer, the next thing is, well, because they're always asking, what do you think we should do? And I said, no, I'm the Ph.D. You're the M.D. What do you think? And he said, well, you know, you got two lungs, so taking one away, you know, you won't miss it. I said, Gregory, you're right. Take it. (laughs) And so uh, Dr. Creighton Wright was my surgeon, and he took my left lung away, and it was gone, and it was just no reason. My mother, it worried my mother more than it worried me. It was out of my control, but I had a great great surgeon. But only it's only been now two years that I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I have to laugh because I'm sorry Mommy's not here because we would get a, a laugh out of that, but it was my right breast. And so we have the same thing. I have two breasts. He said, well, you got two. And I said, well, what do you think? He says, well, you know, at your age, what are you going to do with them anyway? If, you know, he said, if you were 20 or so, maybe it'd be a different situation. I said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, Gregory. But, <laughs> you know, I'm, <laughs> it, I'm not going to, you know, that's not my big worries to be in bed. But I'm very lucky that God or however we look at these things, to have missed a left lung and a right breast means that I'm balanced. And so I think, well, you know, good for us, good for me. I have my issues, but I'm balanced. And one doesn't want to be in pain. You know you're not going to live forever if that's what you're asking. And so you just try to take, make sure you've taken care, which I, I have, of uh, my responsibilities. And that's it. You know, you, one day it'll be, it'll be over. But I don't think I'll be sad, but I don't think I'll be. I don't think it'll be like, oh, goody, I'm dying. I, I don't I don't. I don't think that. I think it'd be like, well, you know, these things happen and (laughs) you go on. (laughs) I laughed about There's a poem in there. And I say that the way that you'll know that I'm dead is not if you bring me some champagne and I don't drink it because maybe that'll happen. But my attorney is Gloria and her husband is Mike. And we know if Gloria and Mike bring me kumamatos, which are my favorite oysters, and I don't sit up in the bed to eat, then they're going to say she's gone. <laughs> That's definite. She's gone. We're sorry about that. I'd have to be really dead not to want Kumamoto's. <laughs> so. You said you don't have many regrets. And I'm thinking about a line from your poem, Werewolf Avoidance. You write, Poets should be strong in our emotions and our words that might make us difficult to live with, but I do believe easier to love. Poet is garlic, not for everyone, but those who take it never get caught by werewolves. And I wondered, at your age, do you think you've loved well? I think I've done the best that I can do. <laughs> That's all I'm going to do, so I, I, don't, I don't ever blame myself for my shortcomings. And because I teach writing for a young audience, 
I've continued to have my students speaking of werewolves and things, but we start to look at, and we're looking at it now, Little Red Riding Hood, who actually, we get that folktale doing uh, the Scarlet Fever. And we know that it had to be one of the most difficult things in the world for her mother to put that red riding hood on her, which is going to say, beware, she may be poisoned. She's got the disease, which actually she didn't. And she must have given her everything they had to eat in the house, whatever they had. And she told her, now go to your grandmother. And I'm a big fan of grandmothers. So I know that in going from her home in the city through the forest to her grandmother, her mother knew I've done the best I can for my little girl. And I hope that they make it. I hope that both of them make it. And I hate the way that some people have taken away. The hunter comes along and, you know, the the wolf eats them. I, I hate all of that because we know that the mother did the best she could to save her baby. And I want my kids who are whom I trying to teach, I want them to begin to understand where do we get the folk tales from? Who is trying to to make what statement? That's what's important. I've done the best I could and and I'm you know pretty happy. There probably been some mistakes, but you know hell, who doesn't make if you don't make a mistake you haven't lived, you know. A publisher once asked you, Nikki, can you please write an about the author for the back of the book? And uh, you protested a little bit. You didn't exactly want to write it, but then you wrote <laughs> your version of it. And uh, I thought perhaps you would like to read it here as we leave. I love that. A long time ago, a little girl sat in the window of her bedroom she shared with her older sister and read by a finger flashlight. She looked at the stars when the battery gave way. And when she got older, she snuggled under her grandmother's quilts to listen to jazz on the radio all night, or at least until she fell asleep. She first fell in love with words. Then they somehow seemed to fall in love with her. She learned history, met people, traveled everywhere. And since this is a good fairy tale, she lives happily ever after. There may be other things along the way, but the words and the stars and the music are all that matters. And I really do. I, I like that. I had, a, I, had, I had fun writing that because everybody, you know, well, what did you do and how did you do and what? Um, and you think, well, you know, I've heard that before. I've heard where I graduated from high school. I've heard it before. So let's do something that makes a little more sense. And uh, it's all there. You do the best you can with what you have. Nikki Giovanni, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sam. And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Camille Collins, Virginia Fowler, and of course, the one and only Nikki Giovanni. Her latest poetry collection, Make Me Rain, is now available on paperback. To order your copy, visit www.harpercollins.com or follow the link on our website, talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd recommend past conversations with poets and writers, 
including Claudia Rankin, Ocean Vuong, Morgan Parker, Gloria Steinem, Elizabeth Gilbert, Dr. Cornell West, Roxanne Gay, and George Saunders. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to purchase one of our mugs or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, our show would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editor is Caitlin Dryden. Illustrations by Chris Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, and Callie Syringus. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Numi Rapace. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.